passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. In a month or two. So, uh, this morning we're jumping back into 2 Samuel. So we have been going through 2 Samuel as a church. Uh, the way I kind of thought of this as we um, get back into a book of the Bible is, you know, there's... Um, uh, when there's breaking news, so to speak, on TV, and then they'll, they'll cut in, and then they'll say at the end, and now back to our regularly scheduled programming. That's kind of the way I feel as we jump back into a text of Scripture. We are a church that normally goes through a uh, book of the Bible uh, verse by verse, and that's what we are doing this morning. 2 Samuel chapter 20 is a text that is fundamentally about legacy. And so if you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to chapter 20. It's uh, the passage that we're going to work our way through is all about the end of David's reign. It's the, the closing chapter of David's reign, if you will. And that might surprise you because if you open up to 2 Samuel chapter 20, you'll notice that there are four chapters remaining in this book. So how can I say this is the final chapter of David's reign? Well, 2 Samuel chapters 21, 22, 23, and 24 are fundamentally an epilogue. They are a few different stories that come from various points of David's life and reign, and then a couple songs that David wrote during the, over the course of his reign as the king. And so chronologically, this passage, chapter 20, is probably one of the final events before the events of 1 Kings chapter 1 and 1 Kings chapter 2, where Solomon becomes king in the place of his father David. And so as one of the final chapters or the final chapter of David's reign, there's some items in this chapter that address the issue of legacy. What is David's legacy as the king of God's people? And maybe that's a question that you also are, are wrestling with about your own life. What is my legacy? And if you're not considering that, I, I think you should. You should give thought to what exactly my legacy is. Because the reality is a legacy is made up of the thousands upon thousands of day-to-day -day choices that we make. Whether we find ourselves in our 20s or in our 70s or beyond. That's true of David. And that's true of every single one of us as well. The choices that we make each and every day define what our legacy is. And so as we read our way through this text this morning, I want us to have that question at the back of our mind. What is this chapter saying about the legacy of King David? Now, it's been a month and a half since we've been in 2 Samuel. And so I want to just take 45 seconds or maybe a minute to remind ourselves of the setting of this book before we jump in. As you would expect, 2 Samuel is the second half of the story that starts in the book of 1 Samuel. These two books are, are very important in the, the history of God's plan of salvation, not only for the people of Israel, but for every single person on the entire earth. And this passage, or the, these two books, rather, they tell us of our, our great need for a king. And surprisingly, that's not something that's just true of people living 3,000 years ago. That's where, roughly, the, the book, 2 Samuel, takes place. 
It's also applicable for us as well, that we also are a people who need a king. But we don't need a king just for the sake of having a king. We need a specific type of king. And if you've been with us in the course of First and Second Samuel, you've heard me say this multiple times, that we need a, a specific type of king who's going to point us to the true king. That's going to point us to God himself. Now, that's God's original purpose for kingship. It's to point people to himself because he is the true king over all of creation. And so that's what First and Second Samuel do. They are focused on God and his desire for a king who will point people to him. And we see that on display in two specific kings. We see that in Saul and all of his failures. And we see that in David. In the ups of David's life as well as the downs of David's life. And that's the lens through which 2 Samuel chapter 20 asks the question of legacy. Ultimately, it doesn't matter how large David's kingdom is. It doesn't matter how impressive his building projects are. It's, it's not about how big his army is or how many battles he has won. The question about his legacy as the king over God's people is as how he functions, primarily as one who points people to God, as the king over God's people. And so with that in mind, let's take a look at 2 Samuel chapter 20 this morning. We'll notice that, that our, our chapter breaks into four separate sections or four headings, secession, murder, siege, and legacy. Let's go ahead and pray as we jump in to God's word. Father, I want to start this morning by expressing my gratitude for how you've spoken, how you continue to speak to your people through your word. And I'll confess that on the surface, this text might seem like it has very little to say to us, thousands of years and thousands of miles distant, but at the same time, we trust and believe that you have spoken through these words, that you have much to say to each and every one of us this morning. And so, God, as we open your word, we ask that you would do exactly that. You would speak to us, for we long to hear from you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, 2 Samuel chapter 20 opens immediately after the events of 2 Samuel chapter 19. Recall what has just taken place. We have been following this coup led by Absalom, David's son. He has seized the throne, and now he seeks to kill his father to establish his kingdom. In 2 Samuel chapter 18, Absalom's rebellion is defeated. And then in 2 Samuel chapter 19, David returns from exile back to his throne in Jerusalem. Notice, and we're not going to read this, but notice what chapter 19 verse 41 says concerning David's return from exile. All the men of Israel came to the king. So David and his entourage are on their way out of exile back to Jerusalem, and they are met when they cross the Jordan River by representatives of the entire nation of Israel. All of Israel is represented to welcome their king back. And one would expect this return of the king to be one of great rejoicing and celebration, that David would finally be returning to the, the days of glory as of old, that, that this whole mess of, of rebellion is at last behind him, and now David David's going to sit on his throne in his glory. But that's not what we encounter. The end of 2 Samuel chapter 19 tells us about this fierce argument between the people of Israel and the people of Judah, the people of Judah being David's specific tribe. 
And the chapter ends with some very ominous words. We see this in verse 43. But the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. And we would hope that this argument between the people of Israel and and the people of Judah would remain just that, that it's an argument and nothing more than that, but apparently it exposes some fractures in David's kingdom, in the nation of Israel, and at least to the secession movement. And that's what we pick up on in verse 1 of chapter 20. Now there happened to be there a worthless man whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjaminite. And he blew the trumpet and said, we have no portion in David and we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. So all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. But the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. Now, one of the unintended consequences of putting chapter divisions, which were not a part of the original Bible, one of the unintended consequences of putting chapter divisions in the Bible is that we can, we can actually read into a passage a chronological break where there is not one. So notice the beginning of verse 1. Verse 1, now there happened to be there. So in other words, right as David is returning from exile, before he's even made it to Jerusalem, a man who is at Gilgal is welcoming David back from exile, part of this welcoming party, decides that, you know what? David isn't all that he's cracked up to be. This, this argument with the people of Judah realized, well, you know what? We don't, we don't actually want David. And so in the heat of the moment of of 2 Samuel chapter 19, he grabs a trumpet and he says, hey, forget it. We don't want David. Let's let's not follow him. We don't want him as our king. Everyone who isn't from the tribe of Judah, go home. Leave David behind. Go to your homes and we'll find a new king. We'll find someone that we like better. And as we look, second half of verse 2, that's exa- is exactly what happens. The men of Israel who had gathered at the Jordan River, they're, they're there to welcome David back as their king, and, and they instead decide, David's not worth it. We can find someone better. And so everyone returns home. Now, it's important to note that Sheba here is not the same as Absalom. Absalom had tried to kill David and seize his throne, but Sheba is instead arguing for something different. He wants there to be two kingdoms. This is the way it was in 2 Samuel chapter 2, 3, and 4, that there was a divided kingdom. There were two kings. David was over the people of Judah, and there was another king who was over the people of Israel. Now, that's not to say that Sheba's actions here are more permissible than those of Absalom. He's still rejecting the Lord's chosen king. Notice verse 1 describes him as a worthless man. And so he might not be setting himself up as a rival king to David, and yet he's still rejecting God's king, and by extension, he's rejecting God himself. Now, just pause here, because very clearly, things are not returning to normal for David. The men of Israel have abandoned him. Even though the men of Judah remain with him, this would be a good place for us to pause and ask a question about legacy. What exactly are these first two verses telling us about David's legacy? And I'll go ahead and leave that contemplation to you on your own, because the situation gets even darker. 
Verse 3, And David came to his house at Jerusalem, and the king took the ten concubines whom he had left to care for the house and put them in a house under guard and provided for them, but did not go into them. So they were shut up until the day of their death, living as if in widowhood. This verse might seem a little bit out of place. It's sandwiched in between Sheba's succession and David's pursuit of Sheba to end this rebellion. But one of the things is we read the Bible, a best practice, so to speak, is it's always a good idea when we come across something that seems a little bit out of place to ask ourselves, what is the author trying to communicate by placing this right here? Not somewhere else, but right here. And when we begin to ask that question, we begin to realize, well, you know what? The the author has placed this right here so that it jumps out of us, That, that it's given this place of prominence because it shows us a very sobering picture of what David's kingdom is like. Now, remember the events that lead to this moment. David was a polygamist. He had multiple wives. He had concubines or second-class wives. And after his sin with Bathsheba, God declares through the prophet Nathan in chapter 12, thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of of this son. And that's exactly what ends up happening. Absalom usurps his father's throne. One of his first acts after that is to sleep with his father's concubines as a way to to seal or secure his claim to his father's throne. And so here, David returns to Jerusalem, and he doesn't welcome these women back into his harem of wives, but instead he has them live set apart as though they're widows for the rest of their lives. Now, that's not to say that this is a form of house arrest. When we read a house under guard and they were shut up until the day of their death, that's not house arrest, but instead it is a reference to seclusion and mourning and protection. But one of the things that we see very clearly here in verse 3 is the ravaging, devastating effects of sin. And in this case, the effects of sin on those who are victims rather than than perpetrators. These women spend the rest of their lives cut off from the rest of society, not because of any fault of their own, but because of Absalom's sin. Not only because of Absalom's sin, but because of David's sin with Bathsheba. We could go even further, not only because of David's sin with Bathsheba, but they're victims of David's sin of polygamy in the first place. Here are women that have their lives ruined by the sins of others. You see, this is not only a picture of, of how lives can be ruined by sin, but it's also a sobering picture of just how, how complicated life can be because of sin. As I was studying this passage, these verses actually reminded me of conversations that I've had in a couple different places in Africa with church leaders, where where polygamy isn't a a big thing, but it is still around. And there are these questions that these church leaders are wrestling with of what are we supposed to do with people who, who come to faith in Jesus and have multiple wives? They're coming out of polygamy. What are we supposed to do to counsel these new Christians Are we supposed to tell them to divorce all their wives except for one? 
But if we, if we tell them to do that, then we've marginalized all of these women who are now have no source of, of support for themselves. Or do we tell these, women, or these men to continue living a polygamous lifestyle? But again, that's contrary to the way of Jesus. So the question these church leaders have to wrestle with because of the devastating effects of sin, so how do we, how do we take this knot and begin to untangle it in a way that honors the Lord Jesus? You see, sin not only ruins life, but it, can, but it can make lives very messy and complicated once we come to our senses. And that's what we see from David here. David's life, very first verses as David returns into Jerusalem, David's life here is exceedingly broken. His kingdom is broken because of his sin. And we would do well to ask the question, what, what is this final chapter of David's reign saying about his legacy? Again, I'll leave that question to your own consideration. The text consider, continues into a second section under the heading murder. David recognizes the threat of Sheba's succession movement, and so he acts swiftly in order to put it to an end. David approaches his nephew Amasa, and Amasa is the new leader of his army after his other nephew Joab murdered his son Absalom against his wishes. And so David approaches Amasa and says, I want you to muster the men of Judah, form an army to chase after Sheba. You have three days. And apparently that's not enough time. It's too quick. And so Amasa isn't able to do it in time. And so David instead sends out his standing army, referred to here as Joab's men. Not under the leadership of Joab, though, but instead under the leadership of Joab's brother, Abishai. Let's pick up in verse 4. Then the king said to Amasa, Call the men of Judah together to me with three, within three days and be here yourself. So Amasa went to summon Judah, but he delayed beyond the set time that had been appointed him. And David said to Abishai, Now Sheba, the son of Bichri, will do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he get himself to fortified cities and escape from us. And there went out after him Joab's men and the Carathites and the Pelathites and all the mighty men. They went out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. Notice again that while Joab isn't mentioned by David, we're told that these men under Abishai's control are Joab's men. This again gives us a little bit of insight into who is really in charge here. And so the army heads out under the leadership of Abishai. It heads north. It actually catches up to Amasa about five miles north of Jerusalem at this town called Gibeon. Verse 8. When they were at the great stone that is in Gibeon, Amasa came to meet them. Now Joab was wearing a soldier's garment, and over it was a belt with a sword in its sheath fastened on his thigh. And as he went forward, it fell out. So we're told that here, Joab is with his brother Abishai, and he's with these troops that are referred to as Joab's men. Now, Amasa sees his cousins coming with troops, and Amasa, as the leader of the army, he assumes that these are reinforcements, and so he goes out to greet his cousins, Joab and Abishai. Verse 8, again, now Joab was wearing a soldier's garment 
And over it was a belt with a sword in its sheath fastened on his thigh. And as he went forward, it fell out. And Joab said to Amasa, Is it well with you, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. So Amasa comes forward to greet his cousins and appears that Joab does the exact same thing. He leads, he heads towards his cousin, gives this word of greeting. Is it well with you, my brother? Now, significantly, he reaches out with his right hand uh, to greet his cousin with a kiss of affection. He uses his right hand to grab his cousin's beard to pull him in close. This isn't like a fight kind of thing. This is, you know, just get over here so I can give you a hug, that kind of thing. Notice the text specifies his right hand. That's significant because that would have been a person's dominant sword hand. This is the hand that you would use to fight. So by reaching out with his right hand in fellowship and affection, Amasa here is completely caught off guard, completely unconcerned about the possibility of deceit in the mind of his cousin Joab. Now, the narrator tells us the true story. When Joab is headed toward his cousin in greeting, his sword fell out, almost certainly in the folds of his robe. So it falls into his robe. He catches it with his left hand. He keeps it hidden in the folds of his robe. And Amasa would have had no idea what is coming next. Verse 10. But Amasa did not observe the sword that was in Joab's hand. So Joab struck him with it in the stomach and spilled his entrails to the ground without striking a second blow, and he died. Then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri. Amasa has no idea that his cousin has murder on the mind. And Joab strikes so swiftly and effectively that he doesn't need to strike again, and he murders his cousin and leaves him lying there in a pool of his own blood. Did you catch the indifference of Joab and Abishai at the end of verse 10? It says, and he died. And then the very next sentence, then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri. They're completely indifferent about what they've done to their cousin. They're completely unconcerned with the fact that they've murdered their cousin. Instead, they immediately set out in pursuit of Sheba. Verse 11, and one of Joab's young men took his stand by Amasa and said, whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. And Amasa lay wallowing in his own blood in the highway, and anyone who came by seeing him stopped. And when the, men saw, when the man saw that all the people stopped, he carried Amasa out of the highway into the field and threw a garment over him. When he was taken out of the highway, all of the people went on after Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. So after this murder, we have Abishai and Joab. They set off immediately in pursuit of, of Sheba, but there's still a mess left behind. There's this large group of soldiers that are present who have been summoned by Amasa, that have Amasa as their leader, and now Amasa is lying in his own blood. Uh, that doesn't matter to Joab. And so he takes one of his personal soldiers, and he sets him to stand right by Amasa and make this pronouncement to everyone who is gathered there. He, he makes this claim. Basically, he says, if you're for David, then you have to realize that Joab did this for David. And if you follow David, if you're loyal to David, 
You have to follow Joab. No ands, ifs, or buts. And so, the army slowly begins to march on, following Joab. Notice who's in charge. The text has gone from under Amasa's control and Abishai's control, and then now it's just they're following Joab. Joab here has seized all the power. But as you would expect, the sight of Amasa, their former commander, he's either dead or he's dying in the middle of the highway, causes soldier after soldier to stop and stare. And so with ruthless efficiency, this young man who is declaring that if you're for David, you will follow Joab, just callously picks up this man, carries him off the road, throws him in a field, throws a cloak over him, and the problem solved. Out of sight, out of mind. Do these verses disturb you? Good. Whoever said yes, thank you. Because they should. It's disgusting here. Joab is uncontrollable, even for David. David made it very clear, Joab, you are not in charge. And over the course of just like five verses, now Joab is back in charge. He does what he wants. He does what he thinks is best. Now notice how he is intensely loyal to David. He does this for the sake of David, pursuing Sheba. But he's not just intensely loyal to David, he's also intensely loyal to himself. That he's not content if someone else is in charge. What's more, he doesn't use the king's methods. This, do you think this is what David wants? No, he doesn't. He might have the, the king's best interests in mind, but he doesn't use the king's methods to accomplish that. Have you ever considered how this same spirit of Joab is a temptation for us today as well? To accomplish the king's plans to accomplish the king's purposes in a way that disgraces the king. As I read this passage about Joab, I just reminded of Jesus' words before Pilate. He says this, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. This passage should be a warning that it's not enough to have the right interests in mind, to be focused on Jesus's kingdom and to do whatever it takes to accomplish that. Joab here reminds us that wrong is always wrong, that the kingdom of Jesus will not come about through violence, but, but instead through the absolute sovereignty of the king. This morning, I was reading in, in the book of Ezra, 
in my personal devotions. And one thing that I saw that was just so clearly on display in chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7 is how God changes miraculously, changes the heart of a pagan king to accomplish exactly what he wants. That pagan king has zero interest in the things of God. He's actually just looking after his own best interest because if all of these different religions are happy and content and can do whatever they want, then it's better off for him. But God uses that to accomplish his purposes to establish the people of Israel in the land of Israel once again. It's an absolute miracle. Ezra doesn't raise his his hand in, in violence. He prays, and God, who is absolutely sovereign over every single person, every single event, every single thing that happens in this world, accomplishes his purpose. As I look at Joab, I think that the servants of King Jesus have to be known for the fruit of the Spirit, not for a spirit of contention. Take seriously the warning of Joab here. I don't mention politics a lot, and that's intentional. And I'm not going to go specifics here. But over the last two days, I think I've gotten eight pieces of mail, and every single one of them was an ad for caucusing this coming, I think, a week and a half from now. I'm not going to say anything about who you should vote for. We have some good candidates, we have some bad candidates. I think that this passage is reminding us not so much of what we should do on Tuesday the 15th, but what our hearts should be, where our hope should be. When we go, and you should, it's, it's, a, it's a good thing as citizens of God's kingdom to also be good citizens in this world. But when we go into caucus, What is your heart? What is the heart of this passage? Is it a a resolute trust in the King Jesus and his kingdom that he is absolutely sovereign and he can do anything? Or is it vindictive? And to accomplish the Lord's purposes through worldly means. Again, there's more I could say. I'm not going to. This is a check on our hearts in this very contentious time. Let's keep moving. Turn our attention to the third section of this chapter. That's the siege. We pick up in verse 14. We see that Sheba's rebellion may have been met with unanimous approval in verse 1, but now it's fizzled out. The people of Israel have had a chance to cool down and come to their senses. And now we encounter Sheba, and we find him in the far... This is kind of funny. We find him in the far north of Israel, He's uh, over 100 miles north of Jerusalem. He's 40 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. He's, he's on the verge of pagan territory. And now no one is with him except for his own clan. Verse 14. And Sheba passed through all the tribes of Israel to Abel of Beth Mekah, and all the Bichrites assembled and followed him. And all the men who were with Joab came and besieged him in Abel of Beth Mekah, 
And they cast up a mound against the city, and it stood against the rampart, and they were battering the wall to throw it down. So Joab here, he's pursued this worthless man for over 100 miles, and he's finally got him cornered. And so he begins to lay siege to the city of Israel named Abel. This man has no problem killing his own cousin. He also has no idea uh, or no qualms about uh, destroying an entire city in order to get to Sheba. Thankfully, someone intervenes here. Verse 16. Then a wise woman called from the city, listen, listen, tell Joab, come here that I may speak to you. And he came near her, and the woman said, Are you Joab? He answered, I am. Then she said to him, Listen to the words of your servant. And he answered, I am listening. Then she said, They used to say in former times, Let them but ask counsel at Abel, and so they settled the matter. I am one of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. Why will you swallow up the heritage of the Lord? The woman's plea here with Joab essentially centers on three arguments. First, in verse 18, Abel is a respectable community in history. We don't have a history of rebellion, but rather of being a place of of reconciliation and resolution. So that's the first thing. Second thing is, in the first half of verse 19, she points out that she, and by extension, all the people of Abel are not a part of Sheba's rebellion. They remain faithful to David and desire peace. Third, and most significantly here, she says in the second half of verse 19 that Joab's attack against Abel is actually an attack against God himself. Regularly in the book of Deuteronomy, God refers to his people as his heritage. In the book of Exodus, God refers to his people as his treasured possession. And if Joab were to destroy Abel, then he would actually be destroying God's treasured possession. How could Joab think to raise his hand against the Lord? Verse 20, Joab answered, far be it from me, far be it that I should swallow up and destroy. That's real rich, right? This man who just got done murdering his cousin. Far be it from me that I should swallow up or destroy. That is not true. But a man of the hill country of Ephraim called Sheba, the son of Bichri, has lifted up his hand against King David. Give up him alone, and I will withdraw from the city. Here we have a man who has no qualms destroying the Lord's heritage, but if the city would make things easy for him, is willing to hand Sheba over, that's going to make it more expedient, and so he's willing to give it a shot. Verse 21. And the woman said to Joab, Behold, his head shall be thrown to you over the wall. Then the woman went to all the people in her wisdom, and they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri, and threw it out to Joab. So he blew the trumpet, and they dispersed from the city every man to his home, and Joab returned to Jerusalem to the king. The woman and the city act quickly. They find Sheba in their midst. They kill him. They throw his head over the wall. Joab, he's gotten what he wants. And so it's another dead Israelite, but it's what he wanted, and he returns home. Now notice that he returns home to Jerusalem and to the king. So here, for all intents and purposes, Joab has resumed his role as the commander of David's army. And we're left wondering, maybe sometimes the ends do justify the means based off the end of this section. 
But of course, that's not the message of the chapter. If anything, this is another moment for us to pause and consider what is it telling us of David's legacy? Here we have a man like Joab that continues to do the unthinkable, but he remains so firmly planted in the places of power. What does that tell us about David's kingdom? And it's with that question in mind that we turn our attention to the final section, which deals exactly with that. Legacy. The chapter closes with a description of David's cabinet, for lack of a better term. It's the description of people who are in charge in David's kingdom. These descriptions are typically found at the beginning or the end of a king's reign. And so when taking with the fact that the final few chapters are an epilogue to 2 Samuel, these verses are essentially saying they're the final statement of David's kingdom saying how we should evaluate David's kingdom if we're willing to pay attention. Verse 23. Now Joab was in command of all the army of Israel, and Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, was in command of the Carathites and the Pelathites. And Adoram was in charge of the forced labor. And Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was the recorder. And Shiva was secretary, and Zadok and Abiathar were priests. And Ira the Jairite was also David's priest. If these words seem somewhat familiar, it's because they are. We read something similar back in 2 Samuel chapter 8. So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was over the army, and Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was recorder. And Zadok, the son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, were priests. And Saraiah was secretary. And Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Carathites and the Pelathites. And David's sons were priests. These verses in 2 Samuel 8 are from the golden age of der- era of David's reign. And there are a number of parallels with chapter 20. But there's also some significant differences, which I, think I, which I think reveal 2 Samuel's assessment of the kingdom of David. Let's go ahead and put this up on the screen. John Woodhouse, in his book, Your Kingdom Come, actually helpfully lays out these two passages side by side to compare. And I, I've recreated this comparison for you. Notice all the similarities. Joab is in charge of the army. Benaniah was over the Carathites and Pelathites, which is David's bodyguard. Jehoshaphat is the recorder. The secretary might be the same person. It's just a different version of the same name. And the families of Zadok and Ahimelech are priests. But notice the differences. They're, they're just as important. They're more important here. I want to point out two. Notice, you see what's missing from the introduction of 2 Samuel chapter 20? So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all the people. The text is shouting at us in its silence. It's saying that David's kingdom is no longer a kingdom of justice and equity, or a word that's probably better translated as righteousness. This is the legacy of David and his kingdom. Do you catch the ripple effect? of David's sin with with Bathsheba and his sin against Uriah. His kingdom is left in absolute ruin. There's no going back to the old days. David's legacy is not as a kingdom of peace and justice and righteousness, but a kingdom where those things are now absent. They're gone. That's the first. Did you notice the second? 
By the time 2 Samuel chapter 20 comes around, a new position has been created in David's cabinet. And Adoram was in charge of the forced labor. Now, we don't know the specifics of this position, but we do know is that it wasn't there in chapter 8. And now, taken with everything else we've seen in chapter 20, it's here. And that's a troubling sign. Samuel actually warned against this type of action from kings generations earlier. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint some to plow his grounds and to reap his harvest and to make implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. And he will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. And he will take the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. What's more, it's the issue of forced labor that actually leads to the division of the kingdom two generations later under David's grandson, Rehoboam. It's not hard to see what the final assessment of David's reign is according to 2 Samuel chapter 20. Do you see how far things have fallen from what they once were? David's legacy is a far cry from what it should have been. And that's how this text ends with disappointment, maybe even despair. But it doesn't leave us there. After all, the, the series title for our time in 2 Samuel has been A Better King. And is there any better example than right here at the end of David's reign of our great need for a better king? Here is a king who returns to his kingdom, and yet he's met with rebellion and secession immediately. Here is a king who is unable to take away the brokenness of sin from his wives when he returns home. He doesn't wipe the tears from their eyes. He effectively banishes them. Here is a king who is unwilling or unable to deal with the wickedness of his army commander and effectively condones his actions. Do you see how much sin has ruined David's kingdom? The sin of 2 Samuel 11 has shattered his kingdom. It's destroyed it. And this should be a warning sign to every single one of us of the devastating effects of sin. I think we have a tendency to downplay the severity of the consequences of sin on us and those who are around us. Now, we might not go as far as David here, but the aftershock of sin is extreme. It is destructive. For David, it effectively destroys his kingdom, tarnishes his legacy. What could have been? What could have been? But the primary focus of this text isn't don't be like David. That, that's a good idea. And it's also not don't be like Joab. Also a really good idea. No, this text stands at the end of David's story to pro provide a very clear picture of our great need for a better king. And as we stand as those who are on this side of the cross, this side of the resurrection, we can rejoice that we have at long last that King, that King Jesus has come. Our better kingdom is here. What's his legacy? 
Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Do you see the message of 2 Samuel 20 in light of the broader story of the Bible? One day, we will inherit a better kingdom from our better king, King Jesus. That's the hope of 2 Samuel 20. That's what we have to look forward to. That's our great hope. That's our hope that enables us to endure when we're faced with great trials, great affliction in this life. That's our great hope when we consider our own legacies and, and we feel as though we've wasted our lives our great hope is not the legacy we leave, but it's in King Jesus who was worthy. King Jesus who overcame. One day, we will inherit a kingdom that is better because of our better king, King Jesus. Do you believe that? Is, is that your great hope? Is that your motivation each and every day? Is that your comfort? your solace, when the world around us seems to crumble. Here in the final chapters of David's reign, we see our great hope. It's not David. It's not to live good enough to be better than David. It's in our better king. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you have overcome As we look at the failure of David, I mean, we could replace any one of us there and consider all the ways that we also have fallen short. But our hope rests not in what we are able to do for you, but instead of what your son has done. Thank you. Thank you for being victorious over our sin, over death, that we can be a part of your kingdom forever. That's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.